Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation integrity profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today marks our 159th program. Today's featured Actus solution, as you can see on your screen there, is virtual education curtain call, behind the scenes of star-studded CDI programs. Virtual education curtain call is a three-day online educational event focused on highlighting exceptional CDI programs. Its sessions offer insight into both clinically significant record review priorities, as well as programmatic best practices and areas for innovative CDI approaches. Thanks to our sponsors and exhibitors, attendees of this free event will hear from cutting edge CDI programs about their organizational journey and have opportunity to learn from and exchange ideas with a broad network of peers and sponsors. Attendees will gain insight from the unique expertise of industry thought leaders and your peers, heading up some of the most successful CDI organizations in the country. So we're really proud to be hosting this event coming up September 23rd to 25th. It's open to CDI professionals working in the provider or hospital setting. And you can register today at that link below, hcmarketplace.com forward slash virtual curtain call. All right, so my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists. And I'm your host for today's program, MISC, Presentation and Diagnosis. I'm joined today by my familiar co-host at left, Charm Brody. Charm probably doesn't need much of an introduction these days, but I'll do it anyway. She's a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps, as well as a subject matter for Actus. She has more than 35 years in the healthcare industry, including multiple areas um, of nursing and a variety of roles. Prior to joining us here at Actus, she worked as a consultant, providing program audits, implementation, and continuing education for CDI departments including physician education in various healthcare facilities. I'm sure you recognize her name from writing articles for our CDI journal and CDI strategies and being a presence online. So I want to welcome her back to the program. Welcome, Charm. Hi, good morning. All right. Next, I'd like to introduce today's special guest. We have with us today uh, Kevin Friedman, MD. Dr. Friedman is a pediatric and fetal cardiologist at Boston Children's Hospital in Boston, Mass, right here in my, my backyard, with a focus in non-invasive imaging. He's certified by the American Board of Pediatrics in General Pediatrics and Pediatric Cardiology, and his clinical focuses include echocardiography, particularly fetal echocardiography, management of congenital heart disease, and Kawasaki disease. Dr. Friedman's research interests include diastolic function in left-sided congenital heart disease, fetal diagnosis and management of complex congenital heart disease and Kawasaki disease. He's also an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and I want to welcome him to the podcast. Welcome to the program, Dr. Friedman. Thank you for having me, and thank you for bringing attention to this new emerging uh, condition of MISC. Yeah, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Um, again, want to welcome you to the show, and thanks for being a part of the of the podcast. So, let's just uh, jump right into our questions today. And just for context for our audience, you might have expected an audience poll there. This is a re-record of a program we attempted earlier, but we're 
really pleased to bring it back for you. So we're going to jump right into the interview today. Um, so to start, and obviously a big question, uh, Dr. Freeman, could you explain MISC, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, what it is, how it's defined, and and, and if you're okay with that, your your personal experience with treating and evaluating this diagnosis, I, as I mentioned, you're, you're right here in Boston at Boston Children's, one of the nation's best hospitals uh, for the pediatric population. Uh, we had our big outbreak uh, of, of COVID back in March and April, and it's still here, obviously, but um, so hoping you can help, just help us get to the, the definition of what this is all about. Um, and I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Happy to. So the um, back in the spring in April and May, uh, places including uh, areas of Italy, including Bergamo, Italy, and then the UK, and then subsequently here, where there was large COVID outbreaks, noticed about four to six weeks later, they were seeing a unusual increase in patients, children presenting with high fevers uh, and evidence of multi-system organ involvement, including cardiac involvement. This was occurring, like I said, about four to six weeks after the peak wave of COVID in that region. And these patients were often um, positive for COVID antibodies, but negative for COVID PCR, the acute testing. Um, so this pattern was repeated throughout Europe and then subsequently in New York City, Massachusetts, uh, Philadelphia, and other areas of the country. And starting in about mid-May, uh, multiple organizations, including um, the Royal Academy of Science uh, in the UK and then the CDC and the World Health Organization, um, all define this new emerging syndrome. People have called it, in the US, it's been essentially called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Uh, in Europe, they've called it PIMS or pediatric inflammatory multi-system syndrome, same thing. Um, the hallmark features are its temporal relation to COVID. So these are patients who, the, one of the hallmarks of the definition is that they either have positive serologies, meaning antibodies, or PCR for COVID infection, or strong uh, epidemiological link to a COVID case. And then the clinical features are um, high fevers uh, in most cases. Uh, fever is an, an absolute must. There's no definition of the duration of fever, but typically these are kids who have at least three days of fever. And then evidence of inflammation in the bloodstream. So things like very high CRPs, ESR, D-dimer, and ferritin. Uh, and then clinical evidence of uh, organ system involvement and inflammation. And that has uh, been widespread and variable in exactly what organ systems are involved, but most commonly, um, are GI manifestations, so abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhea are present in up to 80 or 90% of patients. Neurologic symptoms are present in over half, so things like lethargy, confusion, um, or, or headache are, are frequently present. Um, there is a subphenotype or subtype of this disease that mimics Kawasaki disease. In those patients, um, the hallmarks of Kawasaki are rash, red eyes, or conjunctival injection hand or foot swelling, cervical lymphadenopathy, um, and oral mucosal changes like cracked dry lips or strawberry tongue. So patients are presenting with that. And then most concerningly, about half of patients present with cardiac dysfunction, and that, that often shows up as hemodynamic shock. So, shock. so these patients are often presenting very tachycardic with lower borderline blood pressures and needing ICU level care. 
Hmm. Thank you. I mean, that's, there's a well, can continue. Yeah, the clinical evaluation has has typically um, been multimodality and multidisciplinary. So these patients have been evaluated and treated by cardiologists, uh, intensive care doctors, in about two thirds of the cases when the patient's illness severity is warranted IC level care. Uh, rheumatologists or infectious disease doctors uh, to manage the anti-inflammatory therapy. Um, and the workup usually is, is quite an extensive lab workup. We mentioned very high inflammatory markers. They have a very typical pattern of, of elevated white blood cell counts um, with high neutrophil counts and low lymphocyte counts. Uh, they um, almost always, essentially always have high CRP, ESR, and D-dimer as well as ferritin and fibrinogen, which are uh, markers of uh, uh, inflammation. Um, in some cases, they've had renal insufficiency if they've been very sick. They usually get EKGs and echocardiograms to evaluate for cardiac involvement. Um, about half have significant cardiac uh, involvement, with most that most commonly being um, dysfunction of the left ventricle systolic function. Uh, and then the second most common, or the other common cardiac findings are uh, things like valvar regurgitation, usually mitral, um, or coronary artery enlargement, dilation, or aneurysms, as are seen in Kawasaki disease. All Very right. good. Uh, I think you actually covered all of the manifestations in the body systems. That was, that was really great. I was listening to you intently. Um, can I ask, though, do you have any advice for any CDI professionals that would be reviewing these charts? What might they see? Would it be the, the fever lasting the three days that would draw their attention? Um, or is there something else that they might see right away that they should be looking for? Uh, I, th I think a lot of, uh, because this is a syndrome, a little bit like Kawasaki disease, it, uh, it, it, there is no, there's no specific lab testing or definitive way to diagnose this. I think that the couple of key things are the temporal association to COVID. So the, all the, the three definitions from the World Health Organization, CDC, and the, the British definition all require some link to COVID. So either a positive PCR in the past or present, positive antibodies or serologies for COVID, or uh, epidemiologic link like a, a family member or contact that's had it. Um, and then definitely fever. So it's, it's really, if you don't have fever, you don't have this disease. And then elevated levels of inflammation um, that are pretty that are significant. There's no specific cutoff, but these aren't children who have like mild elevations, which are often seen in viral illnesses. Those would be the the biggest hallmarks. And then the, one of the issues is the clinical manifestation can, can be quite broad and diverse. Um, so there isn't a definitive way to to diagnose it clinically, but um, they have to have at least one and some definitions more than two organ systems involved. So that could be cardiac, GI, neurologic, uh, dermatologic, uh, um, or hematologic would be the common ones. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Dr. Friedman, in terms of accurate reporting uh, of this diagnosis, what, what, what are the, the, the obstacles here that we're looking at? Um, you know, I, is it really, is it the lack of a definitive ICD-10 code? Is it do you think physicians, maybe outside, especially of you know the children, the children's hospitals, the pediatric hospitals, are 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 unaware of what this is at a clinical level? Um, is it is it hard to just get it with good data collection measures, capture it in the electronic record? 
What 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 obstacles have you seen? I think because it's a new disease, and there's no definitive test, it, it is hard. Uh, there is both extremes. There's there's the lack of knowledge about it, and, and that's rapidly changing with all the um, professional journals public public pub, making publications on this condition, and a lot of media attention. Um, and then there's the other side of it, which is that now that it's getting a lot of attention, it's on everyone's mind, and uh, and, and actually trying to overdiagnose this, is, this in some cases an issue too. Um, so I, I think the issues are mostly that you have to have a high pretest probability or suspicion of disease because there is no specific finding or definitive diagnostic test because it's a new and emerging syndrome. Right. Interesting how you mentioned it's different than COVID-19. Um, and I was just reading that recently that as of August 23rd, there's been about 529,000 cases of COVID-19 in kids um, 19 and under, but it's it's not the same and it's a, the temporal association. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So the, the, one of the key differences is the acute COVID um, patients are, are much more frequent, like you've mentioned, of half a million or more. The CDC actually reported about two weeks ago the number of MISC cases that have been reported to them through the State Departments of Health at, at 570. Okay. So it's still well, extremely rare compared to COVID. Um, and the timing is different. Like you mentioned, COVID, those patients have a positive PCR in the vast majority of cases and can have manifestations similar to adults, so often respiratory or um, kind of general fever, malaise, but, but tend to be more respiratory illness if they get very sick. Or these patients rarely have respiratory illness, and they're about four to six weeks after acute COVID infection. Um, and so they, and they often do not have a positive PCR, but have positive antibodies indicating that they previously were exposed to the virus, but no longer have active viral infection. Gotcha. Thank you. Wow. All right. I have another question for you. So a recent NPR um, article uh, came out and they were talking about a New York City hospital that were placing these children um, with MISC into a surveillance program. Um, is Boston Children's looking at doing this as well? Are, are you aware of any of that going on? Um, or any other epidemiological studies or efforts that are being made in that? Yes. Um, yeah, because it's a new disease, we don't really know the long-term, the, even the medium-term, much less the long-term complications and implications of having this MISC disease. So here we are, we've seen about 50 cases in Massachusetts, the vast majority at Boston Children's Hospital, where going to follow them longitudinally, um, specifically for cardiac problems over time. The National Institute of Health has funded a um, longitudinal study that will also aim to enroll 600 patients with this disease and follow them over two years' time uh, for both cardiac involvement but then other organ system involvement, just to have a better sense of the natural history of this disease and what these patients may be at risk for over the medium and long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. Thank you. Yeah, that's great to have because that's <clears throat> to me one of the more insidious things is the the long term impacts um, that can occur with COVID patients, but it sounds like even more so with these MISC cases. Um, you know, just uh, I, I I did want to ask you, Dr. Friedman, about you know this is a time when kids are going back to college, starting back at school. 
do, do you think this this diagnosis will impact is making any uh, parents rethink the return to school and what if, if you know as a doctor what 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 advice you might give to parents um, and what some of our committee members on that wanted to see the show sent me information about the, the Cove Kid Project, covekidproject.org, which I would recommend as a good resource. But uh, some of them, are, you know, they, they have children. I myself have a daughter who's starting college uh, tomorrow. She has to go and, and be tested and, and um, wait for the results before they start classes. And I've got a 15-year-old who's going to be going back to school in a hybrid model. But do you have any thoughts just on the where we are right now as a, as a nation with kids going back to school. Um, yeah, I think it's really, really a, a, a difficult situation with um, two bad options, unfortunately. Yeah. The, um, I don't think MISC should play a huge role in it. I understand uh, how families and parents and children would be concerned because they, a very small number of children have gotten very sick from this. And in fact, there've been 10 reported deaths in the US. Um, related to this in that recent CDC report. But the number of cases is still so tiny compared to the number of COVID cases mm -hmm. that I think MISC is not a huge factor um, in terms of whether we should be opening schools or not. It, I wouldn't completely ignore it, but I don't think it's a, it's a major thing just because the incidence is so, is so incredibly low compared to COVID infection in general. Right. I think there are major societal implications for opening schools. Um, although the vast majority of kids with acute who, who do get acutely infected with COVID do just fine. Um, there are a small number who will get sick from the acute infection or from MISC. And then certainly even probably a bigger issue will be that they'll be spreading it uh, to their contacts, both at school and at home. And so that's why I think it's a really tough situation where we know there's a lot of downsides to keeping kids home, and we know there's a lot of downsides to sending them to school. So, right, it, it is it's a great uh, choice to be making. Yeah. Well, just to wrap up here, Dr. Friedman, you you, you mentioned a, a couple studies I think during today's program. Is there anywhere you'd you'd suggest our listeners go or do next who might want to learn a little bit more about MISC and how they can help, particularly for our audience, you know, with with capturing the documentation. Yeah, so I think um, most children's hospital websites, including Boston Children's and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, have nice summaries of their um, experience and treatment algorithms for MISC. And then the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, on August 7th in their Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report presented all the data to date in the United States on COVID infections from March through July 2020. Uh, and that's available online. And that's dated August 7th, 2020. So that has the most up-to-date information uh, we have, and that's nationwide reporting data. So I think that's the best uh, data we have to date. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm just putting up here the, the Cove Kid Project. Uh, people might want to check out, too. This has some updated numbers about um, reported COVID-19 cases as well. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Friedman. We're going to jump over here briefly to our In the News segment. So In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Uh, since we are talking about the MISC diagnosis, I do have some good news to share on that front from a coding and documentation perspective. So we've probably all seen that the American Hospital Association in conjunction with the HEMA 
has been issuing some revised frequently asked questions regarding the ICD-10 coding of COVID-19. This has been updated quite a bit. In fact, the one I'm showing now has been updated since, although not the questions I'm going to refer to at the moment. So this was revised as of July 23rd. There's actually been, a, I think, an August 6th revision. But um, if you scroll down on this ever-lengthening list of, of guidance here, uh, questions 36 and 3017, uh, 3017, 36 and 37 uh, of this frequently asked questions actually have guidance um, for MISC patients. So just to summarize those, and I do recommend you checking out, as I always do, I will share the links for these news items after the show in the show notes. Um, they, uh, there's the question posed to, to coding clinic advisor reads, what is the ICD-10 CM diagnosis codes for a children, for a child admitted uh, due to documented multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, due to COVID-19? And they, the uh, AHA gives you the advice, assign code U07.1, which is, of course, COVID-19 as principal, and M35.8, other specified systemic involvement of connective tissue as a secondary for MISC due to COVID-19. They note that MISC is a manifestation of COVID-19 per the instructional note under code U07.1. COVID should be sequenced as principal and additional codes should be assigned for the manifestations. It does state that CDI professionals should, of course, query the provider if the documentation is not clear whether the physician considers a condition to be an acute manifestation or, or residual effort from a previous infection. Uh, 37, question 37 also has uh, coding advice for MISC in a different scenario. This is a child who was diagnosed with COVID-19 previously but no longer has that. In this instance, they state to assign code M35.8 as principal for the MISC and then B94.8 sequela of other specified infectious or parasitic diseases as secondary. And again, of course, to query the provider, um, if necessary. So we do have some advice here. Again, I'll, I'll be sharing the link to this in the show notes, but um, maybe I'll just ask Dr. Friedman briefly here in this instance. I'm, I'm curious as to how much you're, you're aware of coding documentation queries. I'm, I'm, as I mentioned to you before the show, I'm not even sure where, where Boston Children's is with a CDI program. Or um, We could talk a little bit about the, 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 the capture side in the codes. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure either, but uh, the it has come up recently specifically in regards to uh, coding for echocardiograms and how to code those. And my advice to the coding team was until we have a, um, a universally recognized MISC code to to code this as uh, an inflammatory dis disorder, which I think there is a code for. Um, and uh, similar to Kawasaki disease, it, uh, Echoes are indicated as our EKGs for all patients with this with this disorder, um, and I think I think that's the simplest way we we found to do it. But I, I would admit it's a work in progress. Right, Charm. Any thoughts here? I know the regulatory committee, which you're a part of, was was happy to see this come out. Yes, they were. Um, just we just want to make sure that all these medical records are documented well. We you know we're trying to make sure. I think across the country that the coding represents exactly what is going on. Um, and it's hard to do when we don't know what the codes are. So I think we've been 
very fortunate that they have come out with um, some of these codes earlier than what we anticipated and that they've actually given direction now. You know, with COVID, we didn't know where to go and we're worried that the numbers were greatly skewed. So, um, and the same with the MISC. So, yeah. with good direction, hopefully everybody will get this right. Yeah, I have to give credit to the AHA. They're, they've been getting out guidance pretty darn quickly. And uh, it's been They helpful. have, haven't they? Yeah, they have. In a year that it's been needed, I, I'm going to tell you, I was very thankful that they did. Yeah. All right, let's just wrap up here with a brief Actus update. Speaking of the regulatory committee, uh, we have a brand new article to share on the Actus website, well, relatively new in the past two weeks, um, related to MISC. This is written by members of the Actus regulatory committee. So again, I'll, I'll, I'll share a link to it. I'm not going to share the article in full. It's, it's fairly lengthy, but it does have some guidance here specific for CDI professionals. Um, just an excerpt from that. The, the punchline of it is what can CDI professionals do to help with the accurate capture of, of MISC? Uh, some recommendations are familiarize, familiarize yourself with the list of signs, symptoms, and testing commonly performed. We heard a lot about that today. Work to educate your coding team to help them to identify potential MISC patients when reviewing the documentation. You might have to educate your clinical staff on the documentation of MISC and the need for strong, consistent documentation of that link to COVID-19. That's got to be in there. Uh, recognize the query opportunities when the provider is describing the condition of MISC without using that exact terminology. Uh, consider making this a performance improvement project for your department. I like that one a lot. Um, this will allow you to dedicate the resources or get the resources you might need for clinical education. You might want to define the signs and symptoms that should be included in the final coding summary, retrospective chart review and construction of query templates. Reach out to your infection control team. Use a team approach to find out how your health system is reporting the MISC data to your state health department. And that may help long term with um, building a partnership and resource network with other departments. So. Thank you to the Regulatory Committee for putting out this article. You can download it in full here on the website. And again, I'll be sharing that um, after the program. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI. We'll be back here uh, very shortly for CDI scorecards. Just as a reminder, you can listen to the show uh, anytime on our website or via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. These are available uh, immediately following the live show, and we'll have the show available for you very shortly. As always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, you can always drop me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That will do it today. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Friedman, for joining us today and for all your help on the front lines providing clinical care to our most vulnerable population, uh, children, of course, and keep up the great work. Thank you again. And for everyone else, we'll see you back here uh, for CDI scorecards. Take care, everyone.